First, I just wanted to tell you a little bit about me. So my name, Sean, is Welsh. Um, I could tell you a lot of funny stories about people that have mispronounced it. My favorite one that my kids love is Stan. Uh, I think sometimes people see the I and like put the T in there. So yeah, um, I have. I'm married. Um, my husband and I actually lived in New Mexico for 12 years when that picture was taken. Uh, we worked at Rehoboth Christian School. We moved down there after we were married. Um, that's my family. Um, my son is behind me, and then my daughter and uh, just married son-in-law, and then my husband and my youngest daughter. Um, so I originally am from England. My whole family is English. Um, my dad worked in international business. We moved to the Netherlands when I was seven. My parents put us in a Dutch school, so I learned to read and write and speak Dutch as a non-Dutch person. Um, and then when I was 14, um, my parents moved to the U.S. We moved to the Chicago area. So I started high school as a immigrant, basically. Um, and the fun people asked me about my accent, and so the high school had like 2,000 kids. I was a freshman, like trying to fit in into this new country, and it was all just weird and different. And everybody spoke funny, apart from me, obviously. <laughs> I had a regular <laughs> English accent, and my one of my teachers asked me to read something in class, and everybody like turned and looked at me, and I just like was like, oh my gosh. Um, and then people wanted me to talk all the time because they thought my accent was so cool. So what that did to me was I, I basically worked really hard to not have an English accent anymore. Um, and then my friends would always think it was hilarious when they came over to my house because I would, what I now know is called code switch, so I would just switch. And so I would talk to my parents in a British accent and my friends in an American accent. So anyway. Um, I became a Christian when I was in high school and really wanted to go to a Christian college. And I had a friend who was a year older than me um, who came up and visited Calvin and I went up and just just really liked it. I liked some of the um, like Bible studies they had in the dorms and just the community that was there. Um, and that was really the first time in my life I'd ever experienced like a Christian community. My, my parents did not really go to church. Um, I went to youth group in high school. Um, so I was deciding between Moody Bible Institute and Calvin, and my parents were like, you are not going to that, like, cult <laughs> Christian school. Like, we don't know what that's all about. But because we lived in the Netherlands and my parents came to visit Calvin, they saw the Dutch names on all the dorms and were like, hey, this place is a lot better. So I ended up at Calvin um, and loved it. I uh, graduated with a bachelor's in German. Um, met my husband after Calvin. He actually went to Grand Valley, even though he's from Grand Rapids. Uh, got married, moved down to Rehoboth, had kids there. Um, I love teaching, so I went back and got my um, teaching certificate. And then 12 years ago, we moved back here to um, Grand Rapids. And um, our kids were all in school, so I started helping out at school. Got a job as an aide, loved it. Decided to go back and get my master's. Um, so I have my master's in education, emphasis on learning disabilities. And here we are. So I've worked at Grand Rapids Christian <coughs> Middle School for seven years now, 
five in my current job as the ESS coordinator. So yeah, so that's about me. All right, so what I wanted to kind of, I was not expecting this many people to come. I was hoping like maybe 10. Anyway, <laughs> so um, it's really like thinking about like who middle school kids are and how we as teachers can support them. Um, so kind of, well, let's do this first. So if you want to talk, turn and talk to your neighbor, just share a couple things about you. Um, just to kind of, I don't know, help get to know each other. I mean, usually people sit next to someone they know, but I just thought, you know, you can share some things, sh some things about you. Um, if it's someone you know, then maybe do the coolest, weirdest thing you've ever found, um, or a place that you would like to visit the most. And I'll give you guys, I don't know, a minute and a half. <coughs> Go. wanted to learn more and if you wanted to dig a little deeper then you can click on those links and you can 
treat those things. Um, one of my favorite verses is Micah 6, 8. Um, and this is the message version of it. But basically what I really like about that is the justice piece and the neighbor piece. Um, and I have a little bit of a, a quote here. Um, and it's, it's from, a, from a review of a book. Um, but it's the, my biggest takeaway from that is God, God isn't just um, interested in the justice piece and he's not just interested in the loving piece and it's kind of how do those two things go together. Um, and that's what I really think about when I think about being a Christian educator. It's how do you, how do you combine those two things for your, for your kids? Um, how can you be interested in being a justice seeker and how can you be interested in loving all your neighbors and um, for me that includes like kids who maybe necessarily aren't always included the way that they could be in a classroom how do we get that connection to happen um, there's, this is a, a framework called the Belonging Framework, and I'm not going to go over the whole thing, but it's basically the three different levels. It's being invited, being welcomed, and being included. And um, in a lot of disability um, circles, this is talked about quite a bit. So there's the level of being invited. So just welcoming kids into your classroom who are different is one, one piece, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're welcomed. It's like, yeah, okay, you can come and come and sit in here, but are you really part of the classroom? And I know this is something um, that is hard for teachers to do sometimes because those tools aren't always available or there isn't enough time to go into how to move into the next two levels. Like the welcoming piece, I think, in most of our schools, we also do pretty well. Um, we're we're able to kind of wrap our arms around students who are different learners and who have different abilities. But the inclusion piece and having those, those students actually know that they are part of the community and that they have access to things the way that other kids do in your classroom is sometimes the thing that is the hardest and takes the most amount of work. Um, and that's why I highlighted that sentence down there. How are you removing barriers? and negotiating constraints to ensure everyone can participate. Um, a lot of times that is, you know, curriculum can be a barrier to students, um, language can be a barrier to students, um, and it takes time to think about all of those things and think about how you can re remove some of those barriers. And what I'll talk about later is how accommodations and modifications in the classroom are actually one way to accomplish that goal. Um, <clears throat> we're going to watch a short video, hopefully if it works, and this is um, from 2020 Teachers of the Year, um, and I didn't have sticky notes, so it says write it down, but I just want you to think about which one of these resonates with you the most. Um, it's just teachers talking about the best advice that they ever received from a teacher before they were teachers. Advice you've ever received from a teacher? The best advice I've ever received from sorry that students will often 
often forget what I say, but they will always remember how I make them feel. And so I want to make my students feel empowered that they can go out and save the world. You're going to hear a lot of educational vocabulary. You're going to have a lot of initiatives over the years. Always keep the kids front and center and first and foremost, and you're going to always be right. All students are gifted. And when they walk through your classroom doors, have high expectations for them and knowing that all students can learn at high level. To look at your child's world like their oyster. Every single moment is a learning opportunity. What you focus on, you'll get more of. So focus on your students' strengths, their abilities to learn and be so incredibly thoughtful and creative. Be a reflective teacher. Don't keep doing the things that don't work. Change it up. Because the classroom is in constant motion with activity and discussion and sometimes disruptions and you always need to have a plan but be ready to deviate from that plan. Be realistic about what you can achieve with your students, with their parents, with your colleagues. Um, and remember that it is a marathon, not a sprint. I have a Why I Teach folder and I put all of my kids' notes in there, little mementos and trinkets and things uh, that bring me back to why I'm in this place. The best advice that I've received from another teacher is to embrace mistakes, um, both your mistakes and the mistakes of your students. Failure and mistakes are incredible opportunities to learn. They need to hear the funny stories about me. They need to hear the times that I was vulnerable. And I think that really helps me connect to my students because they see me as a real person who makes mistakes and who is just like them. Just to remember that every student has a story. You know, each day a student's going to be walking in your classroom and you don't always know what's going on, so it's so important that we build relationships with students. Every kid that steps foot in our classroom is somebody's child, and so we need to keep that in our minds. Teach kids, not curriculum. The best advice I've received as a teacher is to place an emphasis on process, not product. I really love my kids. I really want to see them be successful. Um, and because my students know that, they rise to the occasion every single day. Um, so just turn to your neighbor and share which one resonated the most with you or which one stuck with you. And I'll give you guys two minutes.
everybody had something different, different to say, and I think that's so important that we learn from each other. Okay, so I want you guys to read these, and I hope you crack up a little bit like I did. So I was looking for research kind of about who middle school students are, and I found this website called Understanding Science, and it's actually put out by um, University of California, Berkeley. And I was expecting like some like deep wisdom, and this is this is uh, what it said. So I'll read it to you guys. Sixth graders will stay with engaging projects for some time. Seventh graders have other agendas and often test out their social skills, however nascent they may be. Eighth graders will rapidly and smoothly convert a lab into a full full-blown social experience which has little to do with what the teacher intended. And I was like, well, yeah, that's very true, but that is not what I expected to read. Um, during the middle school years, students tend to ignore evidence that does not support their current thinking and explanations about the world. Correspondingly, investigations that challenge their current explanations and understandings should be part of the middle school curriculum. <coughs> This one, I think, cracked me up the most. Um, sixth graders, except for a few more mature students, may look and act like children. They still regard the teacher as the fount of knowledge and their unquestioned leader. Seventh graders have typically entered what may be the most disorienting time of life. Very true. <laughs> They've discovered sexuality but deal with most things like children. Bickering and tattling are rampant, and they are intolerant of imperfection in anyone or anything. Eighth graders are generally in the process of coming to terms with their emerging adulthood and are far more mellower than sixth or seventh graders. Many of them understand and appreciate irony and adult wit. While they are not children and want independence, they often prefer adult guidance to full responsibility. So I have another turn and talk. And or we can share we can share out. Do you guys have any nuggets of wisdom that are kind of like that? Or like favorite stories that support what those slides said? <laughs> oh, so I was I don't know, I was just thinking about like different students that we have in our school and like I think I was thinking about like student teachers that we have come in and like their first lesson that they teach in front of middle schoolers, and you're kind of like, okay. Because <laughs> sometimes, depending on the grade, they can be really nice, and sometimes they can be like, you are not engaging me, and I'm done. And it can go south pretty quickly. Yeah? I guess um, I moved from second and fourth grade up to middle school just uh -huh. this year, and I was really nervous about the behavior transition wording, all of that change in, in the hormones. But all, but my, so my little quote would be: um, sixth, seventh, and eighth graders are just bigger second graders. I mean, really, their behavior is not a ton different <laughs> than yeah. some of the issues I had to deal with with the little ones. So I'm like, oh, I feel like I'm still in the younger grades, really. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. I just want to catch one more parents, especially seventh grade girls, just like. This is a really horrible time, and I'm sorry. Like I walk with your kid, and I, I know they're dealing with. I mean, 
just the meanness. The meanness is just overwhelming. I think for parents who've never had middle schoolers, like especially first-time parents, they just they're like, she's so mean. She's so mean, and I'm like. Yep, give them like a year, like one year, and it will come back. And I, I feel like just trying to walk parents through that has been interesting for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyone else have anything they'd like to share? On a positive note, I do find that that middle school age, even though they like kind of are adultish, but they're still little children, you can I've like taken my kids out to the woods, you know, and I'm like, look at this. Like, and they're like, no way! They're like super, they can get really into like, and I kind of in my head are like laughing. They're like digging through this ride, you know, log, and they're so into it. I'm like, I love that, because in high school, I teach them too, and they can kind of be over it. But middle schoolers, I feel like I can still, you can get them pretty excited about things that aren't being super exciting. Yeah, we want them. Yeah, go ahead. One thing I love about middle school students is that they're making decisions about the way they're going to act and be and their character for the rest of their lives, and they don't even realize it. <laughs> so, so helping guide them and, and show them that, you know, this is who you want to be is, is just so rewarding. I love that about middle school. I like that they like when you're witty and funny. So one time we were having to talk about how class could go better, and I just said, I like most of you, and they all just died laughing. <laughs> well, thank you guys for sharing. Okay, so this is kind of more into the, the nitty-gritty here. So this is um, from, um, where did I get it from? Not the CDC. Um, the Department of Education. Um, so this is children, 3 to 21 years old, um, in our schools who have some kind of learning differ difference or disability. Um, and it shows the difference between 1976 um, up to, well, 2019. Um, and I think, like, historically, um, that is about the time that um, ID... EA came into effect is 1976, and that is when um, kids with disabilities started to be included in schools. And so you can kind of see the difference, and I highlighted these ones because um, typically in a Christian school, these are most of the students that we serve. So students with autism, um, oh, this one I messed up, it should be up. No, it should be down here. Multiple disabilities, intellectual disabilities, other other health impairments. So, like, in a public school, that's called OHI, but, like, kids with um, diabetes or um, ADHD, those kids all fall under this, this category. Um, this could even be, like, <clears throat> kids with epilepsy. Uh, this one is specific learning disabilities, so that could be Dyslexia, nonverbal learning disability, um, dysgraphia, dyscalculia, um, dyslexia. Yeah, just a wide variety. So you can see the, the difference. So some of it is kids being diagnosed. Some of it is kids actually being included in regular school classrooms instead of having their own separate schools. Um, 
this guy is called AJ Giuliani, and he does a lot of project-based learning, but he has some really good stuff to say. Um, and on the first slide, there was a, a link to an article, and it's called This is Hard. And if you get a chance to go back and click on that link and read the article, it talks a lot about how teaching is hard and how the pandemic has made it that much harder. And it's, it's just kind of an encouraging note to teachers. And so if you do have a chance, I would go back and read it because it kind of helps reaffirm of like why you should, why you should stick with this. So we're going to listen to a little bit about what he says, um, and he brings up some research on um, teacher relationships with students. Starting with that. This is what Laura Liberante has to say in the Journal of Student Engagement. The teacher-student relationship is one of the most powerful elements within the learning environment. A major factor affecting students' development, school engagement, and academic motivation, teacher-student relationships form the basis of the social context in which learning takes place. Liberante's research and many others make the case that the teacher-student relationships and peer-to-peer -peer relationships form the basis for one of the most important aspects of how to help students succeed in and out of school. Now, all of us that work with children and work with youth, work with teenagers, we know that this is the case, that the more time you spend with a student, the better relationship you build up with the student, the more impact you can have on them in their work in school. We know that having one-on-one -on -one time with a student is going to lead to some greater outcomes than a small group setting or a large group setting. Yet in the confines of school, sometimes this is difficult. We say, how can we make this work with everything else that's going on? We know students need to have that important teacher-student relationship, that mentor-mentee relationship. Yet how do we make that happen? Well, it turns out that Daniel Coyle, in his book, The Talent Code, points out that this doesn't have to be some big type of conference or conversation. In fact, there's a couple key things that you can do with just a pen and a paper or a keypad and a computer or a quick conversation with a student that can have a drastic impact on their academic outcomes. So Daniel Coyle, in his book, The Talent Code, looks at this study that was done by psychologists from Stanford and Yale and Columbia. And they, they recently set out to explore the question, what's the secret of great feedback? That's something that all of us as parents, teachers, coaches are asking all the time. Then middle school teachers assign an essay writing assignment to the students after which students were given different types of teacher feedback. To their surprise, the researchers discovered that there was one particular type of teacher feedback that improved student effort and performance more than anything else. In fact, they deemed this one magical sentence exactly that, magic. Students who received this feedback chose to revise their paper far more often than students who did not. It was a 40% increase among white students and a 320% increase among black students in the study. And it improved their performance on the essay tremendously. So what was this magical feedback? It was just one phrase. Here it is. I'm giving you these comments because I have very high expectations for you and I know you can reach them. That's it. 
Just 19 words. Those 19 words change the trajectory of what students would do that individual assignment. And think about what those 19 words could do if we apply them again and again and again. That our expectations are high and that we know you can reach them and we are here to support you along the way. Here's the thing about those 19 words, about this magical phrase. It's not just feedback. It's actually a signal. It's a signal that you belong. It's a signal that there's connection. And it's a signal that the teacher cares about your progress. And it's going to be there for the journey. That's why those 19 words have such an impact. It's not just the feedback. It's the key piece that a relationship is being built when you give feedback like that to a student, to a player, to a kid, to anyone. Um, and I have you do another turn and talk just to talk to your neighbor about what you think about that statement. Like, how important are those relationships in your classroom and the feedback that you give students? Go ahead.
exciting. Um, so remember the slide a couple slides ago where there were the different disabilities that we have in our classroom. Um, I'm mostly going to talk about ADHD um, because I think there's a we have a lot of kids with ADHD in our classrooms. Um, and I'm going to talk about oppositional defiant disorder a little bit. Um, and then I have a slide that just has like a whole bunch of other things, but it's got an awesome resource on it. Um, I just wanted to mention a little bit about, um, about uh, I forgot my train of thought. Um, what was it? Oh, about the relationship with students piece. So for students with disabilities, they already feel like they are struggling to be part of the classroom. They struggle like they're, um, they feel like they're struggling to belong. They feel like they're not as good as everybody else. And especially in middle school, when those, those gaps start to feel a little bigger to students, not only socially, but the academic piece as well, um, it can be really hard for students. Um, and sometimes what we see from students is that acting out piece. Um, I was in a different presentation yesterday um, that talked about ADHD and anxiety and how those two things go together. And how for girls, a lot of times what, what you'll see is the withdrawal part where, where girls take it um, on themselves. So they, they kind of shut down a little bit and everything is internal. Um, for boys, what, what you will see is acting out an aggression, and that's that anxiety piece and kind of the, the opposition piece. So they don't feel like they're as good as everybody else in the classroom, and the way that that comes out with kids with ADHD and anxiety, especially for boys, is that, that aggression and you can't make me do that. So I wanted to talk a little bit, because it says here um, that in a classroom with 30 students, three will have ADHD. I actually think sometimes that number is a little higher. Maybe some kids are not diagnosed yet. Sometimes they're misdiagnosed. Um, but it is, it is th a thing that teachers struggle with quite a bit in their classroom, and those are the kids that we have in the classrooms. Um, the best match is a teacher who is caring, has a positive attitude, is calm, doesn't react to minor behavioral missteps, and act as, acts as an advocate for the student. And that goes exactly back to that relationship piece again. Like, how are you building that relationship with your student? Because I really think that kids with disabilities that are already struggling and are having a hard time in your classroom, as you get up into grades in middle school, um, that academic piece becomes harder for them. So how are you going to get a kid to do something that is really hard for them in your classroom if you don't have that relationship with them? Um, if you're going to push them and to, to help them succeed at the same levels as everybody else, like kind of what A.J. Giuliani said, um, I believe in you and I, I'm asking you to do this because I think you can achieve at high levels, you've got to have that relationship with a student because you're asking them to do something that is really hard for them. Um, yeah, so I had a little thing that I wrote here also. Um, 
because sometimes teachers will be like, well, they just can't sit in my class for an hour. And it just kind of made me think about church. Like, when church goes longer than an hour, how excited are you to sit in church? <laughs> um, and, like, in elementary school, we build in breaks. We do brain breaks. We don't do that a lot in the middle school. Um, sometimes teachers do, but, like, you know, as classes go into high school, 7th, 8th grade, that doesn't happen quite as often. And, like, at our middle school, we have 80-minute blocks because we do a block schedule. And to expect to expect a student who is in middle school to listen for 80 minutes, I think it's really hard, especially when we as adults have a hard time with that. So just something to think about. We're going to, this is a really short little <laughs> video. Um, it's from um, Attitude. You can kind of, maybe can't see it super well, but it's A-D-D-I-T-U-D-E. It's a really good website to go to if you're ever wondering about anything that has to do with attention issues. Um, there's tons of resources on there. It's a really good one to give to parents. What many teachers don't know about ADHD, your child is an iceberg, according to Chris A. Ziegler, Denby. Just 10% of its complex symptoms are visible to the naked eye. Most teachers recognize hallmark signs like hyperactivity, impulsivity, inattention. But its lesser-known invisible challenges are easy to blame on laziness or disobedience. Use this guide to explain beneath-the-surface ADHD attributes that are commonly misunderstood at school. 1. Developmental delays. Kids with ADHD mature at a slower pace. Their brain development can lag two to three years behind their peers. A 15-year-old with ADHD may act like a 12-year-old socially and emotionally. 2. Impaired executive functioning. Executive functions help kids plan, prioritize, and execute daily tasks. When they are weak, students have trouble with remembering homework or the rules, keeping track of due dates, getting started on boring tasks, sticking with difficult projects, and retrieving facts or information. 3. Emotional dysregulation. ADHD impairs a child's ability to regulate feelings, anger, anxiety, or sadness. Students with ADHD may have overblown reactions to setbacks that seem small and then struggle to calm down. 4. Coexisting conditions. Roughly half of all students with ADHD also have a second condition, like a learning disability, anxiety, depression, or oppositional defiant disorder. The first step towards greater learning is a comprehensive diagnosis and more complete understanding. So one thing that they mentioned in the video is um, kids have a hard time remembering directions. They have a hard time remembering the rules. Um, there's, on one of the slides in the sources, there's a, a link to um, an article that talks about the different learning styles, so auditory, visual, um, and kinesthetic. So, um, and this is in adults. So. Oh, I can't remember. 60, it was about 60% of the population are visual learners. Only 30% are auditory. So when you're giving a kid directions and you're just talking to them, just think about the general population. And if all of us are visual learners um, and have a hard time remembering inf information when we hear it, 
auditorily, think about how much harder that is for a kid with ADHD. Um, like, it's something as adults that, like, if somebody gives you the directions, you kind of want to see them written down so that you know what steps to follow. Kids are exactly the same way, and especially kids with ADHD. Um, and that's why it's important to use those accommodations that hopefully are provided to you um, from someone like me in your school. Um, those are the things that help the kids best in the classroom. And I know it's, it's hard to do sometimes. And I think that's why having a good working relationship with um, the 504 coordinator or the ESS coordinator or whatever in your school is, is um, a way to help yourself out in the classroom. Um, oppositional defiant disorder. So it's a behavior disorder that puts children persistently at odds with authority figures. Children with ODD are temperamental, disobedient, spiteful, or vindictive to a highly unusual degree. The disorder significantly undermines the child's ability to get along with family, peers, and other adults. Offering kids choices, safe spaces, and positive reinforcement can help teachers avoid problems or manage them when, this, when they arise. So there's a couple links there um, if you guys want to check that out later. Um, and this is a tough one. Um, but as you saw in the previous slide, there's kids that have ADHD that this goes hand in hand with. Um, and I think especially in middle school is sometimes where those, those things come out more. Um, I think it's important to, if you have a student who's been diagnosed with ODD, there, there is no easy solution. It's building that relationship with the student so that they trust you, but it's also building that relationship with the parents and having that kind of all-encompassing um, team around the student is really the best way to help that student be successful in school. Um, to be consistent, to have um, one thing that, that we've done is like a check-in, check-out, where there's somebody who checks in with that student every day and asks them how they're doing and makes sure that they're staying on top of things and make, making sure that they have a little bit of that order and structure in their lives and in the school and that they know where a safe place to go to is when they are no longer able to manage their emotions. Just having that place in your school is super important. And having everybody in the school know that, hey, when the student is acting like this, this is where they need to go. These are the people that you can talk to um, just to help that student out. Um, and there's just so many other pieces that go along with that. So this, the student is probably going to need social-emotional support and being able to make friends with other kids um, because those those behaviors are going to are going to be barriers to them making friends with other kids. Um, yeah, that's a it's a tough one. Um, Is there any link with this with only children? What do you mean? Like a study that's I don't know. We've oh, like that. with. Like kids who don't have siblings? Yeah. I, no. Not that I know of. Um, one other thing I, wa I want to say about this that 
um, I also, I don't have a resource for, but I saw it yesterday at someone else's presentation, is the link between some of these things and trauma. Um, and I think, I don't know if you guys have heard it in this um, convention, but I've heard it a couple times that people have been talking about the CDC study that talks about that children's health, mental health is at a crisis right now, and a lot of it has to do with, the, with COVID and the pandemic, and how those, those, that is trauma for kids, like psychiatric, currently psychiatric beds are full, um, there are not enough um, psychiatrists um, to help students, so if you wanted to get a diagnosis for a kid, if you wanted to, to refer a parent to resources um, and to get help for their students, those appointments are all backed up like three to six months currently because there is, is such um, a need for them. And trauma in students can sometimes look like ODD and it can sometimes look like ODHD. And I know that, like, at schools, we're just starting to talk about, like, a, a trauma-informed classroom and how do we come around um, students and support them. And sometimes it can be really hard to tell the difference between ODD and ADHD. And that is why, like, having a team that comes around students is just so important. Um, you know, and I think back to, like, when I was in school, like, we never had anything like that. It was like, no, you get sent to the principal's office, you know, like, if you're acting up. Could have been for whatever reason. Um, but now we know so much more about how the brain works and um, how trauma um, affects kids and just with different learning styles. And so, I again, that goes back to that relationship with kids, like building that relationship, knowing what's going on in the kid's life, knowing the best way to help them, and then reaching out to parents and just coming around them um, in that team. Um, so this is the slide that has all the kinds of different learning um, disabilities. And that link on the bottom, um, I'm just, I don't think it'll work if I click on it, but we'll see in a minute. It'll pop up. Yep. Okay. Um, somebody else went through all the work of making this, and if you are ever wondering about what some of the best accommodations and modifications are for kids in your classrooms with different um, disabilities, it's, it's just a really good, a good guide. So it talks about like why accommodations, why are those important in the classroom, uh, what do they help do, and um, it's all about removing barriers. So what barriers are there in your classroom that you can remove as a teacher to help a student be successful? So um, it just basically goes through and talks about all the different, um, let me find an example here. So yeah, it's got, it's got like everything in it. It's got visual organizational strategies. It's got um, test accommodations. <coughs> It's just, it's, it's really amazing. I don't know who, it's from a school district. Um, so here's a whole list of, for instance, writing modifications and accommodations. Um, if you have the time to look through this and read it, maybe print it out, um, 
it would be really helpful for for you just to look through and, and just figure out different things that you can do. And sometimes the same thing doesn't work for all students. Um, and that, again, is where that relationship and that team comes through um, for, like, what is important for students. Okay. This is our last turn and talk. Um, so I want you to think about a student that you have in your classroom who has a learning disability, and maybe it could be a super difficult student. But I want you to think about what some ways are that you could help that student be successful in your classroom. Um, what are some things that you can take ownership of? And um, have you asked that student what would be helpful for them? Have you built that relationship with them to ask them what they need um, from you? So go ahead. Take it. Three minutes and then we're going to be done.